0: The good news is that we will include some revision in today's class. Yes. And we are really on our home run. In fact, um, there's a a tradition that these last three chapters were actually only later added to the Tanya, which would mean that the last chapter, chapter 50, actually concluded the first section of the Tanya. And so it will be most appropriate to, to see how These final three chapters um, wrap up the last discussion that we've been having in the Tanya and then uh, the much larger discussions that we've been having in the Tanya. (laughs) So we're going to start focusing on the topics that we've been focusing on more recently and then we'll zoom out a little more and see what topics we've been discussing over the last few months and then ultimately what we've been discussing throughout the Tanya. With Hashem's help sharing a whole new insight into understanding how our neshama operates or what our neshama is or, or uh, it's going to be fascinating, we're going to learn all about our neshama and through that it's going to give us an uh, insight or like a, the the we'll see is a window into how Hashem operates in this world. Let's start with our most recent topic, and that is love of Hashem. Over the last approximately eight chapters, we spoke about various ways that we could get in love with Hashem. Different avenues and different approaches that we can take. And in the very last chapter, in chapter 50... We described a fiery type of love. And we introduced ourselves to the concept of the of and Shuv. And that is where a person is has this yearning and burning love. To be want to just be attached and come close to Hashem. To the point that he completely expires from all physical limitations. And that was the Ratsui. Which... At face value, for somebody who is familiar with Hasidic teaching, would sounds absolutely wrong. The Hasidic teaches us so much about how Judaism is about being in this world and finding Hashem within the workplace. But it was important for us to learn in chapter 50 that we've got to get out in order to get in. We're not trying to just be a part of society. We're trying to make society. And in order to be able to not just be a part of society, but to contribute to society, we need to get out of it and come back into it. We need to have that Ratsui. We need to discover that burning yearning to be able to come close to Hashem to the point of willing to forego all of our uh, material uh, um, uh, elements of life. But then to channel that yearning for Hashem back into this world, for the Shuv, so that we can manifest this burning love for Hashem in the way that we do His Mitzvahs. So the Ratzoi needs a Shuv, and the Shuv needs a Ratzoi. Or in English, the uh, running above, running up, running out needs a return. But the return needs a running out. When we are feeling all spiritually excited and wanting to just attach ourselves to Hashem, we need to be reminded that, that that needs to be channeled not into forgetting about our families and our friends, but into the way we engage with them. The Ratsu needs the Shuv, but the Shuv also needs the Rotsu. in order for us to successfully be able to interact with our family and friends, being able to give kindness and to, be give, and to be able to give godliness, we need that Rotsi. We need to charge up our batteries. We need to discover and develop this yearning to be able to come close to Hashem so that we have the power to be able to interact with those around us without being trapped by them or without being overwhelmed by the challenges and, and, and sometimes negativity that surrounds us because we have a much more powerful energy that we have developed in our yearning for Hashem that we can now share with those around us. That was chapter 50 in a nutshell. And chapter 50 concluded a a discussion over the last eight chapters of many different ways that we could love Hashem. Why have we been talking about loving Hashem? So that was our first summary, our summary of chapter 50. And we pointed out how that was the final of various loves that the Talya teaches us we could have for Hashem. This was one particular love, the last love that I spoke about, that fiery, um, uh, ecstatic love for Hashem. There were other forms of love that we discussed in the previous chapters. So we have all these different loves, but why did we go down this channel? Why are we talking about love of Hashem on so many different levels? So we're going to backtrack now to chapter 35. And once we're already going so far back, we may as well go back to chapter 1. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, back to the title page. <laughs>
1: right.
0: The title page of the Tanya says, is based on the verse where Moshe turns to the Jewish people and he says, Ki hadavar soisai, that this matter is very near for you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the author of the Tanya says that he's going to explain how it is very close for us. In a long, short way. The Tanya is here to guide us in being able to connect with Hashem with all of our being, with our mouths, with the way we talk, and with the way we feel, and in the way that we act. The Tanya is that guide. It's a taking us by the hand and giving us the insight, inspiration, encouragement, motivation, and help to be able to have a strong and productive relationship with Hashem. And in so doing, since we're talking about a holistic relationship with Hashem, we tackle all of life's challenges that wouldn't seem unique to our religious or godly aspirations. But if we're looking to connect with Hashem, with all of our being, then we need to engage every element of our being in the service of Hashem. The first 12 chapters helped us understand who we are, how we have these two souls, these two drives within us, an edible soul and a godly soul, it helped us understand how do we define good and how do we define bad. It was there that we shared, for example, the novel Hasidic concept that anything that isn't directed towards Hashem is bad. And yes, it sounded dramatic or extreme, but we explained it back then. So go back to those chapters to see what we spoke about. But the idea, I guess it was pointing us to the direction that, how, that we, if we're looking to have a relationship with Hashem, with all of our being, it means that we've got to see how we can infuse and engage and connect every. Element of our lives. With Hashem. Because that's what we're here to do. We're not just here to survive. We're here to bring a higher Godly consciousness into ourselves. And into our friends. And the world around us. And so that was chapters 1 to 14. Helping us understand who we are. And these two drives within us. Understanding what's good and what's bad. And how, what is expected of us. And chapter 12, 13, 14. Spoke about the objective or the aspiration of a benity. The in-betweener to whom the Tanya is addressed. And that is that we should strive to take control of our behavior on a level of action, speech, and thought. But came chapter 15 and said that if we want to be able to go the extra mile, if we want to achieve above and beyond, then we need emotional engagement. And this is the continuous dual message of the Tanya. How on the one hand, action... Matters most. On the other hand. Our actions need. Emotional engagement. So how do we become emotionally engaged? How do we have. Feeling. That will. Push our actions to go beyond. The norm. To go the extra mile. And to that end. We describe chapters 18. Through. Already chapters. uh, 16 through uh, 25, 16 through 25, described how we could develop a love for Hashem that will push us to go the extra mile, or not just push us, that will inspire us and carry us the extra mile. And most of the, the discussion was, it was less about developing a love for Hashem and more about discovering the natural love for Hashem that we all have within us. And so we have, we have the formula to understand the two drives within us, the d- drive for materialism and the drive for godliness. To put a primary focus on controlling our behavior, but on d- uh, bringing a love and fear of Hashem in too, so that we're able to go the extra mile. Now that's alt good and fine all very nice if not for challenges unfortunately in life we're hit with all types of challenges and we can't let them get us down chapters 26 to 34 dealt with one of the biggest challenges of not just our time but of all time and that is feeling down feeling lazy and the taught us how we can Hope. and not just cope but how we can be strong and grow within all the various challenges that bring us down and there wasn't one standard formula The tanya doesn't tell it to us in one foot we had various chapters about 10 chapters that address many different reasons that cause a person to become down whether they're um, uh, worried that God's punishing them or whether they're being self-critical or maybe they're being overly um, arrogant of where they stand. Many different things that could cause a person to come down and the Tanya shared various different um, insights that help us cope with these challenges and actually grow from these challenges. So in summary, chapters 1 to uh, 14 is helping us understand who we are good and bad and what our primary, primary responsibility is chapters 15 through 25 help us be emotionally engaged as well by developing and revealing a natural love that we all have for Hashem and chapters 26 through 34. Help us deal with challenges. A very uh, basic summary of the first uh, 34 chapters of the Tanya. Comes chapter 35. And the chapter 35 really asks a, a major, major question. And that is. what matters most is it action or intention because we're getting a bit of a mixed message over here perhaps we could be on the one hand we're hearing how the most important thing is to control our behavior on the other hand we're putting a lot of time into developing a love for Hashem and chapter 35 goes back to the title page this matter is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the Tanya says the main thing is to do it. Chapters 35, 36, and 37 teach us why action matters more than anything else. Why an, a mitzvah is more important than all the good feelings and all the, the love that we might feel in our heart. In fact, amongst the mitzvahs, how an action-based mitzvah achieves more than even other mitzvahs that, are, that involve even speech, like saying words of Torah. And what was so uh, significant about action? We already spoke about why God created the world. We got into some fundamental stuff. We said God created the world and created us so that we turn this coarse and somewhat dark world into a beautiful palace for Hashem. Hashem created us in this world so that we cause we transform this world into a dwelling place for Hashem into a home for Hashem and there's nothing that does that better than action why because an action engages with the most material of this world when we do an action and imbue it with a mitzvah when we do a mitzvah action we take the physical world around us and our physical bodies and our physical energy And we imbue them all with godliness. We bring Hashem into this world. And and that's what matters most. And we quoted an interesting passage from the Zohar in chapter 35. And that was like this. The Zohar says in short. That if you want a fire to keep burning. You need the wick. But you also need the oil. The oil is what keeps the fire from expiring from the wick. Without the oil, the fire won't last. Similarly, says the Zayar, in order to keep Hashem's presence upon us, we need lots of mitzvahs, good deeds. The Zayar said that actions, good deeds, are the fuel that make Hashem reside upon us. And here in chapter 51, the Al rebbe says, let's have another look at this analogy of this oil that helps the fire remain upon us. What is this oil? Previously, we said it's good deeds. In other sources, we see oil referring to wisdom. That seems to be quite a contradiction. And so again, what we're going to be discussing from here till the end of the Tanya is what it means, or what it takes to have Hashem's shkhina, Hashem's presence upon us. And in order to understand that, the Tanya takes a deep and thorough look at how our Neshama operates, what our Shaba consists of and how it operates. So we're going to learn some deep Hasidus, understanding the operation of Adeshaba, and that will give us insights into how Hashem is found within this world. And we'll start with a question. So that was for the summary, and now for chapter 51. Where is God?
1: Wherever you let Him in.
0: And if you don't let him in?
1: He's <laughs> She.
0: <laughs> he, she, very good. She is female, actually. The presence of Hashem is, refers to as feminine element. Thank you. Not that Hashem has elements.
1: <coughs> <coughs> <coughs>
0: so Hashem is everywhere, oh, but only where you let him in, but where you don't <coughs> let him in, he's also there. I'm getting, I'm a little bit confused over here. So we do need to let him in. We don't need to let him in. Or he was here before we let him in. So why bother let him in? You're also right, right? Like the famous joke of the rabbi. Two people arguing. You're right and you're right. And how could we both be right? You're also right. But that's not good enough. Because this is chisidus chabad. Which means we need to try to understand how this works. So this
1: is what I'm thinking. If Hashem surrounds the world. And Hashem fills the like oh. is everywhere.
0: Anyway. How many you been listening to the previous classes? <laughs> yeah.
1: Perhaps we can only enact or utilize the energy if we. So it's there, but it's a, it needs the flame and the wick. So only if we ignite something in us can we actually burn that energy or utilize it. That's
0: what I'm thinking. Oh, I like that. In other words, there's so much energy around us, but we need to do things in order to tap into that energy. Simply, God is everywhere, but it requires work on our part in order to interact and engage and experience God, a hundred percent. So I have another question. Well, think, yes. It's similar to yes. what I was saying Hashem is everywhere, but it's up to the individual to find Him everywhere. It's the same thing. Absolutely. Same thing. A, a big theme in Ghisthus is how it is our job to reveal hashem within our lives and reveal hashem within the world he's there but to discover him to open up our eyes and to see a higher godly reality absolutely so my question to you is is there any point in going to the Kotel, to the western wall if you're planning i don't know if anybody's planning a trip to israel soon you might be staying in tel aviv um, uh, should you include the Western Wall on your uh, um, itinerary? We
1: always do. You do? Why? Yes. Right. No matter where we are, we always. You always be. do. Yeah. Why? Would, would the energy there not be ignited more because of the people and what happens there? So the energy there is probably strong. Although the energy is everywhere, the energy is probably stronger there.
0: Also,
1: the effort of making yourself it just
0: pulls be there? You. It just pulls you, you go. It's beautiful. So, we come to Israel and we just feel a sense of belonging. We feel a pull. We feel there's a heightened energy over there. There's something special. And this isn't just uh, illusionary, it's real. How do we know it's real? Because the Torah says it's real. The Torah says that the holiest place in the world is, 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 is the Temple Mount, the Holy of Holies. And the closest place that we can go or that we should go. Is, uh, is the Kotel is the Western Wall. I always say, when I come back from Israel, South Africa is my home. I my home, That's Israel. Beautiful. By the way, you could also add Hebron to your itinerary, as well as Tveria. These are also holy places, holy cities, Tzvat. But uh, when you have, when, if you're planning a trip, we could, uh, we could chat some more. But the point that I'm making over here, is, oh, I'm actually asking a question. Uh, Again, I'm a little bit confused. God is everywhere. But He's more present. There's a greater energy. There's an added holiness. How does this work? It's a little bit hard to understand, or very hard to understand. Let me try to give it an analogy. So here's my analogy. Let's say we closed this room, closed all the doors, or we left the doors open and we decided, maybe there's some kind of therapy for this today, that we're going to bring some oxygen tanks into the room so we could pump some oxygen, so that we have more oxygen in the room. The truth is, I don't know the answer to this question, but will it help? Help Um, what? Well, like, help us, like, I don't know, be more, breathe better, better oxygenated. It depends
1: if the oxygen is physical or
0: an analogy. Well, still, let's look at the physical and then we'll see what the analog is. No. 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 Because we're not needed. Thank God we're healthy enough and we
1: have enough oxygen.
0: Meaning... That if the room is filled with oxygen, adding oxygen is not going to help anything. That's really what I'm getting at. Okay, you could say the same thing about light, uh, but you can always increase more light, but not necessarily. To light a candle in the sun is not really going to do anything. So if Hashem is truly, fully present everywhere, then how could it be more present? How could it be less present? That's really the question that today's chapter 51 tackles. I think when an effort is made to be more accessible, to be more receptive to to God's energy, uh, that's when it increases. That's so, what? is His energy increasing, or is our awareness of His energy increasing? Oh, Maybe
1: both. Maybe another analogy would be: we're now in the month of Elul, and we say that this month is the month where the King is in the field. So, what does that mean? It means that the king is not sitting in his palace. Isn't the king always accessible if you need to reach out to the king? Yes, but maybe with a lot more effort. During the month of Elul, we told Hashem our king is in the field and so easily accessible to any one of us can walk out into the field and talk to Hashem. So that's the power of the month of Elul. So does that mean Hashem is everywhere or isn't he everywhere? Yes, Hashem is everywhere, especially in the month of Elul, more so accessible in the month of Elul, should I say. And the same with the other examples that you're asking. Maybe there's some places that Hashem is more accessible and allows us to be inspired to connect with him easier.
0: So this would be going with the explanation that Hashem is everywhere, but it's just about where we let him in. Do we open the door and how easily can we let him in? Or how accessible is he to be let in? So we say that from Hashem's perspective, there's not, nothing changes, but it's really how cognizant are we of God. That really is up for debate. and the, the, the debate would consist of, is what we do only affecting our perception of Hashem? Or does it actually affect Hashem's energy?
1: Mm. Profound. So
0: is it just happening from our space or are we actually causing a change in godliness in this world? When we do a mitzvah, are we feeling Hashem more in our lives or are we actually bringing Hashem more into our lives? I know you'd love to think the latter, but before we were kind of sharing more the former. In order to answer this big question of how can Hashem be more present, I want to be fun because we are running out of time, Natanya brings an analogy, an analogy of how our neshama, our soul, engages with our body famous words of Job, from my flesh I see God, from my flesh I see God. Hasidus explains that when we look at our physical flesh, our physical body, when I look at my body and I see how my Neshama interacts with my body, that gives me an incredible insight into how Hashem interacts with the world. So in order to understand this phenomenon of Hashem being more present in the Holy of Holies. We need to first look at how our Neshama is present within our body. A story. There was a famous Hasid or Tzadikram from Hillel Paritcher. He wrote many Hasidic manuscripts. scripts. And he wasn't originally a chassid at all. And his teacher was a, a great grandfather of mine, Reb Zalman Zezmer. This is in the times of the Alter Reb, of the author of the Tanya. And in Reb Hillel's first chassidist class, Reb uh, Zalman Zezmer shared with him this concept that we've just shared, from my flesh I see Hashem. He described how when we just look at the way Al-Nashamah, engages with our body. It gives us tremendous insight in how Hashem engages with the world. Hashem is like the grand neshama of the world in a similar way to the way our neshama engages with our body. And Rab'Hilal related that that first Tanya class majorly changed his perspective of life. I'm paraphrasing. Until then, he looked at the body as being uh, coarse and... and, 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 uh, uh, disruptive to his divine service. And this caused him now to uh, have a, a real appreciation for his body. Because you realize how this is now the analogy, this is, this is the avenue through which you can understand Hashem engaging with the world. So let's do it. Let's see how our Neshama engages with our body. So where is our Neshama? Before we asked where is God? Where is our Neshama? In every cell, every cell. Everywhere. Every cell of our body. So it's not found more in one part of the body than the other. I'm asking, is is there an area of our body where the neshama is more present? Like we said, there's an area in the world where God is more present. The heart, the mind. The mind and heart. Yeah. In fact, the neshama, the godly soul, the animal soul is predominantly in the heart and then it also stretches through the body to the head but the godly soul is predominantly in the brain and the head. And from there it shares its influence throughout the body, to the heart and the rest of the body. Way back when, in the beginning of the Tanya, when we spoke about how we operate in our godly soul and the animal soul that the two tribes, we gave a powerful tool, and that is to always remember that the mind can control the heart. And we said, how can the mind control the heart? Because our Neshama is based in our minds. And since everything starts in the mind, therefore it's able to influence Even our heart, which means even when we strongly crave something which the Torah doesn't allow us to do or not to do something, the Torah does request of us to do, we can always control our heart because the mind controls the heart. It's just a Hasidic concept we shared back in chapters 12 through 14, a couple of months back. So the Neshama is primarily in the brain, but we're saying that the Neshama is in every cell of our body. So back to the same question Is the Neshama everywhere? Or is the neshamah found more specifically in some parts of the body? So to answer this, Hasidus explains that there are three levels to the neshamah. The lowest level is the specific neshamah energy in each particular limb of our body. Siddhas explains, and I find this quite fascinating, that our eyes don't see, and our ears don't hear, and our nose doesn't smell, and our hands don't feel, and our feet don't walk. The nishama's the ability to see sees, and in order to access that ability, we need to use the fleshly eye. The nishama smells using utilizing the tools or the vehicle of the nose. The hands feel or the nishama feels using the senses of our hands and the nishama goes places using our feet. It's it's really an amazing appreciation. I guess of how spiritual we are and it's, it's quite a change. We realize that it's not our eyes that are seeing; it's our neshama that's seeing, and it's just utilizing our eyeballs in order to see. <clears throat> but what
1: about when we walk walking to
0: the wrong places? Very good question. So here in chapter fifty-one, the the ta- the Tanya speaks about um, how the neshama has like um, six hundred and thirteen uh, different uh, uh, faculties, departments, meaning. Throughout our body, there are multiple um, uh, abilities of the neshama that are each functioning through a particular limb. But but in the commentaries on the tanya, they they note that this is just the godly soul. The animal soul also has its uh, functions. The soul. It's a soul, but it's an animal soul. And so unfortunately, sometimes our physical eyeball can be kidnapped by our animal soul that it now sees negative things instead of allowing the godly soul to utilize that eyeball to see good things. This is level one. Or level three. The lowest (laughs) level of the neshama. I told you, it's deep stuff, but it's beautiful. So this is how the neshama is found within every particular organ. Every, Every organ is a vehicle through which another particular ability of the neshama can be expressed. That's on the lowest extreme. It's the shaba as it is fine-tuned to the needs of each particular limb. It's this wide array, this platea of hundreds of different soul abilities that are each manifest in another part of our being. Now, why is this the lowest level of our Nishama? Because it's very defined. We say that there are 613 abilities of the soul we say that the soul sees, it hears, it smells, it walks, it feels. We're talking about a neshama, which is a very godly um, um, entity with very physical terms. We're talking about the neshama as taking on certain, um, certain definitions. that The neshama either functions or this functions. This function, that function. And that's why this is the lowest level of the neshama. Because this is the godly neshama, but as it is operating through the human experience. What's the highest level of the neshama? It's the essence of the soul. And to this, Debbie, you are right. The essence of the soul is found equally without differentiation in every cell of our body. Why is this the opposite extreme? The ability of the soul to see is a specific ability that is found only in the eye. The nishama cannot Utilize its ability to see through the ear. Hmm. Meaning, this is a very limited, fine tuned, specific ability of the Nishama. And the ability to see is very different to the ability to hear or to feel or to walk. But on the level of the essence of the Nishama, it is beyond any form or description. It is completely infinite. It's posture, it's pure godliness. And since it's so pure in its godliness, there's no difference whether it's in the foot or in the hand, in the eye or the ear. Because it's that same godly energy that's found throughout the body. So the highest level of the soul is found throughout the body. And the lowest level of the soul is found throughout the body, but in a fundamentally different way. The lowest level of the neshama varies from limb to limb. And is found in each limb according to that particular limb. The highest level of the soul is pure beyond any description. And therefore is found equally throughout the body. There's a story once of one of the Chabad Rebbe. He was a child. And uh, his, his, his father Zayda asked him. Where's Tati? Where's Zayda? Which one? Where's Zayda? He asked him. Which river was it the author of the Tanya, the Altadammer, once asked his aide called the Sabaoth where is Zayda? So uh, he, pointed, he pointed to him, he said, that's Zayda's hand. Wherever he pointed, that's, that's another part of Zayda. And then he called Zayda, there's Zayda. When he called him, he, he called him himself. I'm not referring to your hand or your foot. So the essence of the neshama is found equally in every limb of the body without differentiation. It's not found any more in the hand and the foot. But the lowest level of the neshama does vary. The neshama is experienced more in the eye than it is in the toe. Yes, the toe has its unique abilities that allow a particular ability of the neshama to be manifest. But the neshama, as it exists in the toe is not nearly as powerful as the neshama as it exists in the eye. So we have these two extremes. We have the essence of the soul, which has no description, which is found equally throughout the body. And we have the abilities of the soul, which are found to various degrees in each limb, according to its particular needs. Can I ask a
1: question? Yes. It's specific through each organ, so you can lose your sight, you can lose your hearing, you can lose your sense of smell. The toe you can live happily without, it doesn't affect you. But
0: if you lose those major senses, how does, yeah. Where does that part of Nishoma go? So that's a very good question. I think the short answer is that when there isn't a vehicle, then that particular faculty cannot be expressed, unfortunately. So once there isn't that opportunity, then that's right. If you don't afford a person an opportunity to sing, then they'll never, you'll, you won't hear the beauty of their voice. And, and similarly if, if, the, if there's a particular limb is not operating then unfortunately that part of the deshabha is not able to be expressed there's maybe a very similar way so for example the, uh, if a person is blind the deshabha's ability to see cannot be expressed but it, it can, but the ability to imagine can and through its power of imagination it could see so much so they're similar but I still wouldn't say it's the same. i say there's the physical ability, there's ability to see physically, which the shava can only experience through that particular limb. So this is the shava on the lowest level as it's fine-tuned to each particular limb. But there's the essence of the soul which is found equally throughout the body. Now here's the very big question. The question is, where do these specific description or definitions Formulate. in other words, the nishaba has an ability to see, but the nishaba is also just this essential godliness that is pure of any description that's found throughout the body. So, where does the, the nishaba's ability to see come from? The mind. Say again. Where we say that the nishaba, the essence of the nishaba, is pure; it has no description, yet. Every particular faculty of the soul is very defined. So how, where do these defined abilities of the nishaba come from? Meaning, where do we transition from the infinity and the pureness of the soul into the very defined finite abilities of the soul? Hmm. How does this transition take place? I once heard an analogy, it stuck out with me. I heard it when I was in Yeshiva, about 17 years old, from my Hasidic, my teacher of Hasidus at the time, Rabbi Zusha El still teaching in, in Kiryat Gat today. He should be well for many years. And he gave an analogy of, at least this is how I remember it, how you can have somebody that is a very good soccer player and is also a very good basketball player. And why is he such a good soccer player and a good basketball player? Because on Monday and Tuesday, this wasn't the details of his analogy. I'll I'll embellish it for the South African version. (laughs) Because on Monday and Tuesday, he goes to soccer extramurals. And on uh, Wednesday and Thursday, he goes to his uh, tennis extramurals. And so over the course of the year, this particular child has become really good through the daily investment in soccer and daily investment in tennis. He's now become an excellent soccer and tennis player. That's one type of kid. And we're not here to label anybody this is just an analogy then you have another type of kid that is really just talented and whatever wherever you throw him he really excels And i guess i identified with it because i was just thinking of different kids in my class and like just coming out of school and my experience and some guys that that developed different strengths and there are other guys that were just like they really had a talent for sport And wherever you threw them in, they just were already like the best of the team. Okay, maybe they needed to practice a bit, but it wasn't a developed skill. And so he explains that the different faculties, the different abilities of the soul are not from a collection of developed abilities that happen in some reservoir of abilities back in the soul's home base. Rather, the soul is infinite, meaning the soul is talented. Talented is the analogy over here since it's got this infinite, infinite energy so it can be manifest in every area so therefore it's a great seer and a great, great hearer, and a great walker and this analogy is also used back in our where we're going to which is understanding god and his engagement with the world but for now we're just talking about Anishabha. but i think with that explanation that from the infinity of the soul comes unique abilities we still need a middle ground we still need a transition point from the infinity of the soul to the finite abilities of the soul. Hasidus gives an example of, um, if you took a cup of water, if you took a pitcher of water, and you poured it into many different glasses, different colors. So originally in the source, the water is pure. It has no color. But then in the different glasses, it now has different colors. So in its source, it's pure. In its end base, now it's 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 defined. This is purple water, blue water, green water. Is this a good analogy for the way that the soul engages with the different limbs of our body? Can we say that maybe the soul is pure, but as it comes into each particular limb, it takes on those particular abilities, ability to see, to walk? What do you say? Is that a good analogy? it is. No. It's not a good analogy. But the water is still pure. It's the
1: dye that's... It's separate. in the glass. Not even the dye. It's, it's just it the, glass. Glass. It's the,
0: it's the glass. The glass. <laughs> the glass. There's no dye in the glasses. It's colored glasses. Oh, colored glasses. So what happens if you take all of these glasses and you pour the water back into the pitcher? It's
1: pure. pure.
0: It will all be pure again. So what happens is, since the water was originally pure, so whatever coloring the glasses tried to uh, impress upon the water didn't stay the moment you pour the water back the water just reserve, re- 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 reverted to being pure water the fact that already in our brain the neshama can feel each particular limb in our brain, you could feel whether something's bothering you in your eye or your foot. And the whole nerve system tells you that the defined description of each particular faculty of the soul is not only found in that particular limb because you feel it all in your head. So that indicates that the impact of the limb on, that, on the soul is more than just what the colored glass imposes on the water where there's no change to the water. It implies that the soul is changed to each particular limb. And the only way that the limb can change the soul is if the soul already had these defined criteria before it entered that limb.
1: Say
0: that again, please. The, the only way that the limb can have a real impact on the nishaba is if the nishaba allows for that impact before it enters into that limb. So in other words, in summary, because we're really running out of time as usual, we have the infinity of the soul, which is purely manifested in every part of the body. We have the finite levels of the soul that varies from limb to limb. And then there needs to be a bridge. There needs to be a launching pad, a gateway, to be able to take the infinite soul and allow it to be I- impacted and fine-tuned to each particular limb. And that is the neshama as it exists in the head. Meaning that while the neshama on an essential level is equally in the body. And on a finite level is equally in the body. The neshama first is more felt or expressed, revealed, present in our heads. And, and then in our head that the Shabba takes on the ability to be defined by the different limbs. And so it turns out that the Shabba is most felt in our heads. When we say our heads, we mean our understanding. And also the Shabba in our heads is the source of life as the Shabba will exist at each particular limb. Very deep stuff. <laughs> um, but in summary, we've got three levels of the soul the highest is not really a level it's the essence of the soul that's found everywhere equally the lowest is the the, the individual abilities of the soul as they are manifest in each particular limb. and the and the 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 gateway the in-between level is the neshama as it is revealed within our minds within our understanding and um, the neshama as it is in presence in our mind ends up being the uh, the gateway between the infinity of the soul and the finitude of the soul being the source of the individual energy that is injected into each limb of the body.
1: Well, okay. Can you say that again next week? Or so? <laughs> 45 minutes. <ago. laughs> then we need uh, another minutes. lesson on this
0: chapter. Can I just... Yes. So if somebody's brain dead, yeah. then the is still there, uh-huh. but they can't translate it into their limbs and to their organs. I guess so. Perhaps. The, yeah. the, sh- the Shama is still in the body. Sure. They're still alive. Sure. On an essential level, the Neshama is found in every individual limb of that body. But it can't translate to that basic lower level. Their limbs can't move, they can't see. I, I, I guess you're pointing to a phenomenon where perhaps sometimes because of the lack of the Neshama's the revelation or presence in their brain, it's not able to manifest to that particular limb. Yeah, that's right. That would seem to be yeah. the case. Yeah. Yeah. so it would seem. Why are we doing all of this? This is just experiencing the Neshama in our lives through the way we walk and talk and feel and smell and see so that we could see the grand Neshama, the godly energy of the entire world and how Hashem engages with the world. And we'll find out why it is that we include going to the Kotel on our Israel itinerary, which will help us on a grander level understanding how to bring Hashem into our lives and into the world around us. You can integrate that to your body.